Yes, we're going to pray and talk to Jesus. Uh, Lord, it's hard time sometimes to switch gears in our brains and uh, get to where we need to be to hear your word, and, uh, or in my case, to teach it. Um, sometimes that's that's tough. But Lord, I just pray you would move into this room right now, and by your Spirit, that you would shift our our attention toward you, that you would open up our hearts, that you would soften our hearts. Lord, as we as we proceed into this. Uh, next book, Lord, I just ask you to fill this room with the heaviness of your presence. Lord, I pray that we'd feel you really closely. I pray that unbelievable things that, that we're going to say and talk about in the next few weeks, Lord, that those unbelievable things would be, that we would be given the grace to believe them, and not just in our heads, Lord, that we'd be given the grace to believe them in the depths of who we are and to experience these things. We'd know them. They would change us. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to spend the next few weeks in Song of Solomon. We're not going to be talking about sex. I know. We're not going to be talking about romance. We are kind of, but not really. Not really. Okay. Because we're going to go after this book as an allegory. Okay, so that's the first thing we need to talk about. Whenever, okay, it is is should we read this book as an allegory? Somebody tell me what an allegory is. Allegory. Okay, sure. A story, poem, or picture that can be interpreted. <laughs> Typically, a moral or political. Well, that's, a, that's, that's just a, off the top of my head. <laughs> 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 Allegory is where where someone tells a story that has like a that that the pieces of it are symbolic of something else, and that has a meaning that is not immediately obvious when you actually read the story. Okay, now the the Bible has multiple kinds of literature in it. We need to understand this, and we need to understand where the um, you know which parts of Scripture are. These different kinds of of literature, okay? Because if you read the Psalms as a history book, you're reading them wrong. That's not what Psalms are meant. Psalms are poetic. So when you look at things and it says the voice of the Lord strips the cedars, oh really? So God talks and all the cedar trees just lose all of their foliage? No, that's not what is being meant by that statement. Okay, why? Because this is poetic language. It's figurative. It is meant to mean something else. It's to give you the ability to grasp a truth that is not so 
You know, it's not one plus one is two. It's something bigger, something emotional, something that defies our ability to be rational about it. Okay? And you know, emotions are not rational. That's kind of the idea. And that's okay. Emotions aren't supposed to be rational. That's not their purpose. That's one thing that I really wish I could teach every American in the United States. And that is, guess what? Your emotions are not bringers of truth. You need to understand that. Just because you feel something doesn't make it true. Somebody says something, I'm offended because you said that, and then I go back and I talk to you, and you're like, oh my gosh, I did not mean it that way. I meant it like this. Guess what? My emotion was incorrect. My emotion did not bring me truth about it. It did not bring me the facts. That's not what emotions are for. It's not why we've been... Emotions are amazing gifts. But they are not... It's, they, they aren't... They aren't sensory. They aren't senses like your eyes or your nose or your ears. Okay, you have senses and you have emotions, and they're not the same thing. And we need to get a, a, a grip on that. But there are there are emotional realities that we need to be able to hold on to, and so and and there are specific kinds of literature, both in the Bible and out, that are meant to give us. To, to help us with the emotional components of our nature and not with the rational component of our nature. Does this make sense to everyone? Yeah, you guys look completely like, like just... <laughs> don't make me, you know, have you stand up and shake. No, no, I don't know. I've just got this dullness that I'm, that I'm sensing. Anyway, so understand... This book is a poem. It's a song. That's the name of the book. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's the name of the book. It's the very first verse of the book is the title. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. This is a song. Okay? It's, it is a poem. And it's meant to be, to be uh, giving you emotional information. Not factual information, not, you know, it's giving you emotional information. That's just how it works, okay? Uh, and that's what it's for. And when we look at Scripture, we need to understand what this meant to the original author and the original readers of the story. And in the entire history of the book, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, it has been interpreted as an allegory for the relationship between God and his people. All, the, all, all of the history since it was first written, Jewish scholars have interpreted this book as an allegory. Now, you're gonna, if you go on the internet right now and you look at modern scholars, most scholars nowadays would say that, no, this is a book that is teaching us about the romantic part of who we are. And it's about, it's about love between a man and a woman. And it's kind of, you know, a handbook for the, for the wooing of, of, you know, of a Jewish girl. Okay. That's kind of like, <laughs> do you want to know how to get it? Okay, boys, do you want to know how to really get her on? You know, I, no. <laughs> okay. And, and, and that's what it is. Uh, truthfully, this is a love song. And, and that is, that is the point. And, 
So there are things to take from this and read and say, okay, that, yeah, that, that helps me understand the way I should be towards my wife or the way that I should be towards my husband. That, yeah, that's real. That's what's called the natural uh, uh, way of interpreting this book. And that's, that's great. That's fine. We're not going to deal with that. This isn't, this isn't pointers for dating once your first year is over. That's not what this is, okay? That's not, I'm not interested in that. Somebody else can have that do that class with you. Actually, I might be interested in doing that sometime, but not, not in here. Not in here. This is Bible study, okay? <laughs> if you guys, you guys want to talk to Nathan and Sophie and tell them we want to take Pastor Josh's dating class, I'd be happy to teach one. Um... Uh, oh, I'm not going to charge you anything. You can just you can just be really grateful to me later on. <laughs> um, but this, what we are going to do is look specifically at the allegorical, symbolic meaning of this text. Okay, Solomon. Um, this is the Song of Songs. Solomon wrote 1,005 songs. That's what the Bible says. But this is the only one that Solomon called the Song of Songs, the song to end all songs, the, the meta song, the song. It's not just a tale about a boy and a girl. This is, this is the wellspring of all songs. That's the idea. This is the song that sums up all other songs. All other songs are contained within this one song. So this is obviously, he obviously meant something. He meant for this song, song to be read differently than the other songs that he wrote. And there, some of them were very... We're very uh, romantic. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Romance is a big part of his life. Um, it's not a good thing, by the way. God had said to the kings of Israel that they should not multiply into themselves wives or horses. And Solomon did both. So, uh, yeah. Fascinating. Okay. <laughs> The other thing is that people will say, I cannot, I can't read this book and think of my relationship with God because this book is just too darn steamy and sexy. It, this, guys, you do not even know. This song is sexy. That is, this song is extremely erotic. That's just the truth of this song. That is what this like, song is. is. Like, it's about sex. <laughs> okay. okay. I thought it was like hot, like you know. That too. <laughs> this this song. There were rules for Jewish scholars that young men were not allowed to read this book until after a certain age. Okay. This book is rated M. Okay. This book. Okay. This book. They should have a thing at the beginning that says this book is made, you know, meant for mature audiences. Better discretion is advised. Yeah. I wonder what's the kids version. Well, I think that's bullcrap. But anyway. Okay. I remember one of my favorite. Um, the guy who was Matt Redman. You guys know who Matt Redman is. He's a worship leader. The guy who was his pastor. And I'm trying to remember his name right now, but I can't. He was. I heard him. I heard him talk about Song of Solomon. He said he read Ecclesiastes and he needed to take a Zoloft because it was so depressing. And, I said, and then he goes, and then all of a sudden I began reading the very next book because when he first got saved, he just started reading Genesis all the way through to Revelation. And he said, then I read the next book and I start reading and he said, 
He said, I went to my pastor and said, somebody spiked my Bible. <laughs> There's this book in here. I don't know what to do with it. And people, and, and okay, like I have, I have, there are worship songs that take pieces of this book and like make them into a song to Jesus. Like there was this one that was really popular when I was a teenager and it, uh, the, the chorus was, let me know the kisses of your mouth. Let me feel your embrace. And, and I was trying, I was teaching this song to a worship team one time and the piano player goes, I can't do this. Song. <laughs> I said, why not? And she was like, I can't think about Jesus this way. I was like, honey, it's a symbol. It's, you can just relax. It's, it's from the song of Solomon. And she went, I've never read that. I said, well, you need to read it, you know, let's, 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 you know, you need to read it. You need to understand this is, this book is, is powerful. It's fiery. It's an important, and yes, it is. It's sexy. It's steamy. It's hot. It's, 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 there's stuff in here. If you, there's, there's verses in here, which I'm not going to go to them, but there are verses in here, which are just downright dirty. Like you're just like, oh, geez, like you're, you know, uh, and 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 there's symbolism in here, which the the if you read the original Hebrew, it's way dirtier than it than it is in the English translations that we have. Way dirtier because because there's like descriptions of body parts, etc. And you're like, you know, when you read it, you're like, oh, your your navel is a goblet filled with wine. Well, guess what, guys? It wasn't. He wasn't talking about her belly button. Okay, he's talking about something else. Oh yes, okay. There was something else he was talking about there. All right, and if you read the original language, you can tell very quickly. Oh jeez, okay. He was like, "Whoa!" I just somebody spiked my Bible. Is a really good, you know. It's like, wow. And people are people would say, "I can't think of Jesus that way. That's just gross." And you know what? You're right. You shouldn't think of Jesus in a physically sexual way. No, we shouldn't. We absolutely shouldn't. Jesus is not your boyfriend. Okay? Mom. He's not. It's that's not how this is this this is an allegory. Do you understand that the relationship between God and human humankind is eternal, but the relationship between man and wife is not. Okay? This the romantic relationship. Okay? The, the 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 romantic universe that human beings you know can live in is temporary. Once the resurrection, everything happens. Marriage no longer exists. Okay, it gives way to what marriage was created to show us. Marriage was created. Marriage itself is an allegory. It was created to show us what intimacy between God and man should look like, like how, how powerful it is, how pleasurable it is, and how vulnerable you, you should feel. Intimacy between, God, between a man and his wife is, is an incredibly holy thing, but it's even more holy when we begin to understand that this is a picture we have been given by God to show us the eternal reality that we will enter into when this version of human life is over. And, th 
that reality will go on forever, ever, and ever, and ever, and ever. And human, the, the human institute of marriage will not. It, is, it ends at death or resurrection, whichever comes first. That's one of the things my, my wife really hates it when I talk about this. I don't want to think about not being married to you later, you know? And I'm like, I appreciate that, babe, but it's really, it's, it's not going to be awkward for us then. It's not like we're going to, we won't grieve the loss of what, of what we had. Okay. We're going to have something way better, way higher, way more important than, than what we have now. And we won't grieve that loss. You know, it's not, we won't be like, boy, I wish we were still married. Not that's not, it's not going to be like that. It's going to be way, it's just a whole order of, of glory far beyond what we experience now. And, and our marriage is awesome. So we're already experiencing an, an amazing, you know, thing, but, but what's coming after this is going to be so much better. And marriage is just a picture. It's just a clue. It's a way that God has given us to help us to understand what this thing is really going to look like. And so when things get a little steamy in this book, we need to understand that God is saying, I created all of this to show you something real, something far more real than the physical reality that you experience, something far more satisfying far better far greater than than this thing that we that we call marriage so let's just look beyond it to the glory behind it and that's what we're going to do as we go through this and you, you need to understand that the bible is not bashful about sex for instance one of my favorite verses is proverbs 5:18 let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe let her breast satisfy you at all times be exhilarated always with her love. See, the Bible is not like, you know, they're like, guys, have fun. Once you're married, go for it. One of my favorite, and I didn't write it down, but one of my, there's, there's a verse in, in the New Testament, in the book of First Corinthians, where the apostle Paul says, do not uh, uh, deny one another sex inside of marriage. You, you should... Married couples should be having sex on a regular basis, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Seriously, he's saying that. He's saying, he's saying when, when you deny one another, right? When you deny one another, you're, you're inviting the enemy to come and tempt the both of you to, to go somewhere and do something you're not supposed to do. So don't. He says that to both the men and the women, do not deny one another. Which is like, I, like, I, will, I will write that verse on cards that I, like when I give somebody a wedding gift, like I'll write that verse in there. And I'll be like, I'll be, I'll be like, this isn't going to be a problem for a while, but eventually you're going to need this verse. And then I just write it and, and, you know, have fun guys. And because this is, this aspect of who we are is something God created and it's something God really thinks is awesome. He gave it to us. He wants us to express it the way he created for us to express it. And it should be a part of who we are when we have been joined with the one person that God puts us together with for the rest of our lives. Okay, Ephesians 5.31. Go ahead. Oh, okay. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. 
Understand that sex and marriage are allegorical. All on their own. And it's a picture of Christ and the church, and we need to enter into it. We need to understand that that's what's going on. That's why it exists. It exists to show us Jesus. These higher, more eternal, much more deeply satisfying realities that God has called us into. That's why we were created. But remember, Jesus is not your boyfriend. The essential part of this book, the sensual parts of this book, must be referencing something deeper and more eternal than, you know, her breasts are twin fawns of gazelle. Okay? That's, that's, we're going beyond that. All right? Is everybody clear? You are allowed to, to be a little bit, like, embarrassed. It's okay. But my real hope is that over the next few weeks, because what my here's my plan, and um, this book is a is a journey into greater intimacy with God. That's that's the point of this book. This book begins with the Shulamite woman, the 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 beloved, standing outside of relationship with God and looking in and saying, "I want Him," and ends with them fully knowing each other, living in full, complete, and total partnership with one another, and walking together as eternal husband, uh, a bride, and bridegroom. Okay, and, and the book is a journey from this place of desire to the place of satisfaction and fulfillment. That's, that's what this book is. And so we're going to take, I think it's 11, I think there's 11 stages that the book goes through. Let me look and see. Fifteen. There's fifteen stages that she goes through, and we're gonna do you know two or three every day. Although today we're just gonna get to one, but after this we'll we'll plow through two or three of these stages that she walks through. These moments where Jesus is answering her cry, the very the cry that begins with the very first or the the second verse of this book, and but but before we go there. Um, let's let's talk about why we need the Song of Solomon. Okay, God does not put books in the Bible that are unnecessary. They're there for a reason. It's the inspired Word of God, and and this is a book we're going to be studying even when we get to heaven. Understand that we're still going to study the Word when we get to heaven. We're just going to have you know so much better brains and eyes and we're and we're going to be looking through the book into christ this book is an invitation to intimacy with god understand it that's what this is it's it's an invitation to to know him better to understand him better it's an invitation to begin to understand how he feels about you and who he's called you to be. That's what it's, what it's about. The first reason that we need this book is so we know who he is. And not just in a, well, God is omnipotent, omnipotent and omniscient and no, stop that. I am not interested in you knowing facts about God. That's not, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in you having personal experience 
with his glory. That's what I want for you. And this book is an invitation to personal experience with the glory of the uncreated God. That's what this book is. This book is an invitation to learning who he is. And one of the things that we need to learn about him is that he is not some stuck-up old fogey who doesn't care about anything. Our God is wildly passionate to all of his extremes. There is nothing inside of him that is bored or blasé or tired or doesn't care. God is a consuming fire, the Bible says. And we've got to understand that he is absolutely passionate. In every ounce of his eternity, he is burning for you. There isn't anything in him that's like, well, whatever, I don't really care. No, there is nothing in God that's like that. Nothing in him. There is nothing he cares about that he doesn't care about to the point where he would die for it. And guess what? He did. And I don't want you to just know that in your head. I want you to feel that. I want you to feel the fiery eyes of Jesus locked on you. I want, I want you to feel it. I want you to feel the fiery eyes of Jesus like burning through your skull. I just want you to be intimidated by how absolutely passionate he is for you. I want you to feel it when you wake up in the morning. Jesus there saying, I love you. And I want you to be like, ah! You know, it's like it's almost too much for me. I want you to be at the place where you are overwhelmed by how much he desires you. Oh, I want this for you so much. I want it for me, too, big time. But I've been walking with this book for probably 15 years. And no other book in Scripture has taught me as much about God's passion for me as this book has. I feel like this book is my, like, box of old love letters, you know, that I have, like, I actually have one of those, but, you know. Um, but, you know, you go back and kind of, and, and as soon as I begin opening it again, it's like the fragrance of his, like of his, of his perfume, like comes and it's just like, oh, you know that, and I just feel my heart begin to just burn for him again. It's like, oh, I love you so much. And so when I sit and I study this book, I just weep. I'm just like, oh, I want more of you. And I, that's what I want for you. I want you awakened to his desire for you, his, the way he feels about you. I want you to encounter it. I want you to feel, honestly feel on the inside how much he enjoys you. I honestly believe with all my heart that if the church had, if they would just push in just a little bit to this understanding that God enjoys me, that righteousness would be a piece of cake, that becoming like Jesus would be a lifelong obsession for everyone who follows him. But we have so locked God up in our brains that he never makes his way to our heart. And this book is a poem. Poems go right past the brain and hit you right in the feels. That's what they're for. That's what they do. And that's what this poem should do. It disarms you. I always love the... The, the great debate of the Christian of, of this age in Christianity. Unforeseen or sloppy wet, which is it? You know, okay. What is it? 
Which is it? Which is Oh, I'm a sloppy wet guy. I am a sloppy wet guy 100%. You want to know why? First of all, unforeseen makes no sense whatsoever. But second of all, sloppy wet just jumps right past your brain and smacks you right in the heart. You're just like, ah! You know, it's just like, what? He did, wait! I don't, you know, it's, it's like, what did that say? That's a sloppy wet. We're in church, right? I love that. I love it. And that's what Song of Solomon is meant to do. Song of Solomon is meant to, is meant to just, is meant to just jump right over your intellect and hit you right in the heart. That's what it's for. That's what this book is about. This book is God saying, I am tired of explaining to you how I feel. Now I want you, I want to show you. That's what this is, okay? And that's why we need it, to, to experience God's emotion, to experience his passion for us. And the second is we, we, we need to know who he is, but we also need to know who we are, okay? We are a people of the first commandment, Matthew 22, 37, and 38. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Jesus said, the Thing I want you to do more than any other is to love me. It is so easy to forget that. The first and greatest commandment is not to go to church. The first and greatest commandment is not to preach the gospel. Ooh, I, I, I just want to grab. There's so much of the body of Christ that honestly believes that the thing God wants from you more than any other is to preach the gospel. And that is wrong. Does he want you to preach the gospel? Absolutely. But more than that, he wants you to be in love with him. In every dimension of your being, he wants you to be in love with him. He couldn't make it any more clear. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all of you in love with him is number one priority. And we jump right past it. We love the, the second commandment. We go right there and we go to all the other commandments because those we can just check off the list. But loving God with everything inside of us. Oh, man, that's going to cost me everything precisely. And to love God is the highest calling. This is the thing God wants more up from us than anything else. And if we want to love God, we must have revelation knowledge of his love for us. Understand, 1 John 4.19, we love why? Because he first loved us. Until you have experienced the love of God for you, you cannot love him back. And I would say this to you, the level to which you experience God's love for you is the level to which you will love him back. And not just love him back, but love everyone else around you. If you have not experienced God's unconditional love for you, you have nothing to give to anybody who comes looking. That's why you need this book. Hey, Josh. That's why you need this book. Ephesians 3, 17 
through 20, that you would know the love of God in all its dimensions. He says, the Apostle Paul is praying, he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, jumps right over your brain and hits you right in the heart, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You want to be filled with all the fullness of God? This is how it happens, to have experiential knowledge of God's love burning on the inside of you, all of a sudden you're going to walk like him. You're going to talk like him. You're going to think like him. Why? Because he loves you so much and it's going to come pouring, oozing out of every part of who you are. You'll have no ability to be anything but a complete and total lover of Jesus. Why? Because he's completely and totally loves you. It has to begin with our experience of his love for us. And then it can pour out into other places. But it has to start there. 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. It's what's called the behold, beholding and becoming principle. It's in 1 John 3, 2. It's in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the, to the other. It is about seeing him that makes us become like him. It's experiencing him that turns us and makes us who he wants us to be. This is why we desperately need this book. Desperately, desperately need this book. This book is just a gift of fire for your heart. So, I want you, as we go through this book, I want you to make this book your song. It's the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, but I want you to make it your song. Okay, take this song to the prayer closet. Take it to the secret place. Let it become the love language between you and Jesus. Begin to take the phrases. Phrases from this book are going to lodge themselves in your soul and be stuck there for the rest of your lives. If they just will. All of a sudden you'll be like, you know, it just you're just gonna be you'll be you'll be in prayer and all of a sudden you're gonna say, kiss me with the kisses of your mouth, and you're gonna be like, oh crap, what did I just say? <laughs> okay. You're gonna be like, Bruh! it's just gonna come out of you. Let this become the love song between you and, and Jesus. Let the, let let it let it be the language that you use. Which, this is what you should do of the whole Bible, by the way. This is how you make the Bible conversation between you and God, which is, which is how we should encounter Jesus. You know, you know the Bible is, is not given to us for the Bible's sake. Did you know that? The Bible is a gateway to experience with God. That's what the Bible is for. Jesus yelled at the Pharisees at one point. He said, you... Hypocrites, you you search the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but you don't come to me. It's like falling in love with the front door of your girlfriend's house, but never going inside. It's like sitting at the finest restaurant in the world and just reading the menu all day and never ordering any food. 
The Bible is a door through which we encounter God. The Bible should not be worshipped, and a lot of the church worships the Bible, but they shouldn't, because it's just a, it's just a book. We worship Jesus, and the Bible is our best lens through which to see him. Does that make sense? I hope so. So when you're reading the Bible, and all of a sudden you come across a statement that you need to believe. Okay, let's, let's, take, let's take John 17, 26. Somebody look it up. John 17. I promise we're going to get into the first part of this book here in a minute. But John 17. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Okay, did you hear that? That last part of Jesus' goal for us is that the love with which God the Father has loved God the Son would be in you and me. If you think about that long enough, that's another that's another nosebleed verse. If you think, what? How much does God the Father love God the Son? Okay, think about that for just a minute. Now, Jesus says, my goal, my whole, all that I want for you is that the love with which the Father loves me would be in you. That God, that you would experience the very same love that God has loved me with for you. So when we run across a scripture like that, what do we do with that? Okay, my buddy Mike Bickle, who uh, he's guiding me through Song of Solomon this time. I've, I've used a couple different people, but I'm going to follow this, the, 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 what is it, 12 or 13 um, phases of the journey of the, of the Shulamite. They're coming straight out of Mike's stuff. So if you want to hear a better teacher than me teach it, you can go listen to Mike teach it. Um, and he spent a lot more time in it than I have. But we're just going to go through those phases because I've never studied it that way. And I'm excited about studying it that way. When you've studied the, song, the book Song of Solomon like 18 times like I have, you're always looking for new kind of new, new ways to get into it. And, and this time I want to study through by following the, diff, the path of the beloved from from the outside of the house to the to the bedchamber. That's that's what I want. So that's what we're going to do. And anyway, it's all Mike Bickle stuff. But he's this is what he says: when you encounter a truth like John seventeen twenty six, okay, what you need to do is first of all say thank you to God that this is true. Wow, that's really true. Thank you, and then turn it around into a prayer and say, can you help me to understand this better? Can you help me to experience it? I want to I, I want to own this piece of scripture. I want this piece of scripture to 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 be planted in the soil of my heart and to become a fruit for righteousness for your namesake, Jesus. I, I I want this these words, this truth that lies behind these realities, this truth about you. I want it to be to, to, to just rip me up and to change me completely. Will you do that for me, Holy Spirit? And then just wait. And just keep asking that. I want to understand this. I want to understand this. I've had people ask me before, like, how, how do you, you know, how do you study the Bible? This is how I study the Bible. I read a line of scripture that I do not understand or that I don't have full understanding of. And then I begin to say, Father, show this to me by your spirit. Please, I want to understand it. 
I want to more than understand it. I want to feel it. I have to be several weeks out in my sermon preparation. I can't do the Saturday night special thing. I just can't. Because I want to be, I want to just soak in a scriptural idea for a good solid week before I stand up and I'm trying to deliver it. I can't, I can't do that. It has to have permeated me. I need to smell like it. I need to smell like that part of scripture. I need to walk past people and have them go, wow, John 17, 26. That's what I need. <laughs> and that's what I want. I, I want to just be so saturated in scripture that when, when you cut me, I bleed that scripture. That's what I want. And, that, and that's what we're being invited into, okay? It's just a real experience of this thing. So that's when you're given something you believe. When you're given, when you are commanded to do something, when there's a command or, you know, that's listed, okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, okay? That's a command. Then your response is, Father, forgive me because I haven't done this. Maybe a little, but not enough. Help me to obey and help you to understand your heart behind it. Okay, we want, there's this wonderful Greek word. Have I talked to you about epinosis before? In Ephesians 3.17, when it says, and to know the love of Christ, it's this wonderful Greek word, gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S. Okay, and it means experiential knowledge. It's one thing to know that it would hurt if I walked across the room and slapped you in the face. It is another to feel me slap you in the face. Right? It's one thing to know if I put my finger in that light socket, I will be shocked. It's another to have your finger in the socket. Okay, it's one thing to look at the map and say, I, I think I know where we're going. It's another to actually say, I've been down this street and down that street and down that street. Okay? The second is what we want. We want experience of the truth, not just head knowledge. We don't just want facts. We want experience. We want to we want to know what it tastes like, what it smells like, what it feels like. We want to be able to we want to be able to encounter something like when somebody starts teaching something that's not true. We want to have our insides immediately go mm, no. I think I've talked to you guys before about the Secret Service. You know about the Secret Service? Okay? The guys that protect the president, you know, you know about that? Okay? Those guys have two jobs. One, they protect the president of the United States so that they can't be he isn't. <laughs> but the other job they have is to find people that are counterfeiting money. That's their other job. To find counterfeiters. And do you know what they do to make themselves really able to to notice what a counterfeit looks like. They don't study counterfeits. They memorize every tiny little detail of the real thing. They get so familiar with the real, what real money looks like that when they see the fake, they don't even have to know what's wrong about it. They'll just say there's something off about that. And that's what I want for you guys. I want you to be so associated with Christ. I want you to be so just connected to him, that when something comes along that's not like Jesus, you're automatically going to be like, hmm, I don't think so. And it might take you a minute to actually drill down and figure out what it is about that thing that's off. But you'll just know, just, no, I don't, uh, I don't like that. There's something about that that doesn't feel right. Does that make sense? That's what I want for you. 
So let's begin our journey into this book. Are you ready? We might get through four verses today. But I spent a lot of time on, on our preamble, okay? So we can spend the next 40 minutes in the actual book. But before we do that, everybody stand up. Come on. Let's get the blood flowing. Jesus said they're not married nor given in marriage. That does not mean that they don't have any Okay, because he said that and it, it freaked me out. And so I was like, I don't know who I, I asked Jared. And Jared was like, you know, he was talking about it. But then it's like, I don't know. Because then it like... I thought they couldn't. Because because also, they're not supposed to. They're not well, supposed yeah. to. That's the whole idea. But then, it's an abomination. But All right, come on, guys. Let's get back together. Was it actually like angels that come down from heaven? Yes. Like, okay. Because Jesus is talking about like. They're demons. They're not like. Oh, yeah. They're not, there's more than, you know, there's, there's heavens. There's the, the sky, yeah. which is where Satan and his demons are located now. And then there's the, the heavens, which is like where God dwells. Yeah. Okay, come on, people. All right. Verse one. Yeah. Woo. You ready? Here we go. All right. Okay. You know what? We may only get through two verses today. Because these two verses are so desperately important. And they begin us on this journey. Okay. So the first phase, if you're going to take notes, I can give you my notes if you want them. But if you're going to take notes... Um, I can, I'll put them out on, on the website where, yes, you can. I will put these notes. I always do, by the way, I put the notes out on the website where my podcast is hosted. What's your website? It's pastorjoshhawkins.com. Yeah, I do. Go check it out. It's actually, I'm proud of it. Actually. It looks good. I'm, I'm proud of it. Pastorjoshhawkins.com. Uh, honestly you want to know why i have a website because i was because i needed a place to host the podcast and three years ago the 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 students here (laughs) three years ago the students here asked me to podcast the so i looked around for ways to do it and this was like the easiest way to do it so i just started doing it but anyway i do but i hardly ever write Yeah, that's the new church. I hardly hardly ever write. I really like my website. I think it looks nice. But anyway. It is pretty cool. But that's where all the notes for all this is all going to be out there. So um, uh, you can also get to it through iTunes. Um, Just look up Pastor Josh Hawkins and it'll, it'll... All right, now get like stop looking at the website and let's get back to like Song of Solomon. Song. I know, I like to scroll down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And now my sermons from Fremont are going to be out there now too, although the first one's not out there yet because I didn't have the CD until it'll be out there tomorrow. Um, okay, so phase one. 
Okay, the beginning, the beginning of this journey. We're gonna we're gonna walk through all the phases of the journey that this that the young woman, the Shulamite woman, she's she's a she's a young woman. She lives in an agrarian culture, which means that they're farmers. Okay, she she owns a vineyard, which she's gonna talk about here pretty soon. Okay, and and this is this is her journey into being a full fledged belongs on the arm of the king, wife of the king. Okay. She starts off as a little farmer girl and she ends up as the exalted queen of her nation, the favorite wife of the king. Okay. And this is what this journey looks like. Okay. And it is the journey that we, that we take towards Jesus. That's why we're going to follow this journey one piece at a time. But the, the journey begins here. It, okay. Verse one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. I already told you about that. Verse 2. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Okay? Verse 2. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Okay? Here's the picture. We've got our little Shulamite. She's a, she's a pretty farm girl, you know. And she's standing there, and Solomon goes walking by on the street and she sees him and she is like, <laughs> right? She sees him and she is blown away. Oh my gosh. He's a, he is. Wow. And her, and, the, and her very first response after just seeing his kingly goodness. Okay. As he walks by and she goes, I want to kiss that. Okay. That's, that's what she is. She's like, Oh, he needs to come over here and kiss me right now. That's just her instant. Just this, that's that's how that's that's just how her desires made manifest. Let him kiss me. Okay. Now, I anyway. That's where it begins. Okay. That's where this journey begins. And understand, we gotta we we've gotta get a hold of this. Okay. This journey begins with desire. It begins with us seeing something, seeing him, catching a whiff. Of him and saying, ah, oh, I want that. It begins with a decision to pursue. And she's going to go back to this decision over and over and over again through this book. This decision that she makes in this moment is what drives her through all the way through the next eight chapters. And some pretty rough stuff happens in this next eight chapters. She instant, she makes a decision. I want him. Now this picture of the kisses, it's, it's, uh, the Jewish scribes used to call it the kisses of the Torah. It's the kisses of his word. I want to know him better. I want experiential knowledge of this man. I desire him. I want to have an encounter with his word on my heart. I want to walk in the revelation of his heart. I want to know him. I want him. It's desire stirred up on the inside of the bride. And can I say this to you? I want this prayer to be the prayer of your heart for the next couple months as we walk through this book. I don't know what you're scared. I asked Sophie to give me like a rundown of how many more classes we have so we can make sure and get this whole thing in. But however much longer we have together, I want this prayer to be the most dominant prayer of your soul. Let him kiss me. 
Now, guys, there's nothing weird or like this isn't a sexual thing. So do not feel weird about saying, let him kiss me. It's okay. You're talking about Jesus, the masculine before which all else is feminine. You do not need to like feel like, um, am I maybe gay? No, don't even worry. No, it's not like that. Let the Lord stir desire on the inside of you for himself. Let him stir desire for himself on the inside of you. That's what we're asking for. I want you. I love it. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. What we're asking for is the spirit of wisdom and revelation, like Paul talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, where he says, I pray that the, that the Lord would grant you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. It's what we're asking for. I want to get to know this man. I want to encounter him. I want to experience him. Isaiah 62 is one of my all-time favorite portions of Scripture. And it begins with this, with this statement that God makes over his people. He says, I will not be silent. I will not be quiet until Jerusalem is made praise in the nations. And it is this, the, relent, the relentlessness of God. It is God saying over his people, I'm not going to stop speaking until, until you become everything I created you to be. You might say, what do you mean speaking? Well, remember, when God speaks, big things happen. When God said, let there be light, something that had never existed before in the history of the universe began to exist because God named it. If you look at the original Hebrew, it just says, light be. I love that. This thing, which had never existed, came into existence because God said, come into existence. That is, it's that God who said, light be and light was. Those are, that, those are the words. Light be, light was. That's how it goes. I love that. It's like when God speaks. See, God could never lie. One of the reasons God can never lie is because as soon as he says it, it becomes the truth. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. God can't lie because he's, just, he's like, I have a million dollars in my hand. It would just be there. Oh, yeah, I know. Right. Me too. <laughs> okay. And God says in Isaiah 62, I will not be silent. I will not be quiet. And I love that because he's, he's going, it's almost like he begins to speak over you like, like, I'm speaking over you, Jay, that you're a mighty man of God and my word's going to flow through you with power and the gospel will run swiftly as you preach it. God begins to say that over you. It's like one of the angels goes, God, shut up. And he looks at the angel and he's like, I will not be silent. And then he's like, well, then at least keep it down. I will not even be quiet. 
God is like, no, I don't think so. I'm going to keep speaking. I don't care what it's like right now. I'm going to speak until this thing comes bursting forth out of the invisible and into the visible. I'm going to keep speaking. And this is, this is the Shulamite saying, yes, speak. Kiss me with the kisses of your mouth. She's like, I, I want that. Please, now, come here. Now. <laughs> Can you imagine you, you meet someone and the first time they... Uh, the first time they see you is it? Let me get in. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. <laughs> Have you ever? Do you guys? Thirty Rock is one of my favorite television shows. And, and there's this Liz, you know, uh, 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 Tina Fey. There's this thing that like she'll see things, and she says, "I want to go to there." Like she'll she'll see like a donut or whatever. Or the first time she sees Matt Damon, she says, "I want to go to there." It's the same thing. <laughs> She dates Matt Damon for a while, so in the in the in the show, but <laughs> it's just this unconscious like uh, 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 thing that her mouth does when she wants something. She's like, "I want to go through that." <laughs> well, that's what the Shulamite's doing. She's like, "Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth." I mean, like, what else would he kiss her with his nose? I don't know. Just, See, it doesn't have to make sense. Okay, we're not going to explain. Remember, we're we are not. I want his mouth on my mouth. That's what she's saying. I know. She's just like blah. She doesn't have. She's not. She 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 does. She is not speaking rationally. We're skipping rationality and we're going right to raw emotion. That's what we're doing. And that's this is just this is just how it comes out of her. I really want him. I love how you're talking about kissing you. Because ah. <laughs> <laughs> that's just what's how it is. <laughs> what is the... <laughs> Sloppy wet, man. I told you already. This is what's going... But that's the thing. This... He has... Understand. He has awakened desire inside of her. This is much more than just a sexual desire, but she doesn't know how else to express it. He has awakened desire on the inside of her. And my prayer for you and for me is that that, is that desire for intimacy would be awakened on the inside of us today. And that we will be marked by it for the rest of our lives. That we would not be able to get away. Her whole journey from, the, from verse 2 all the way through to the end of the 8th chapter of this book, is governed by, ruled by, driven by... Uh, every time she, she gets offended by him. He, does, he allows things to happen to her that are painful and difficult. Truly. This journey is not going to be all, all roses and lipstick, okay? This journey is going to be rough. It's going to be hard because he's leading her out of just, uh, she, he's, he's saying to her, I, you, want, you want me, I will let you have me, but I want you. And she says it almost immediately. We'll get there in a minute. But she says, oh, let, me, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. And she's just like, oh, instantly thrown into this place of, I, I desire him. It's the request that begins the journey. 
And she returns to this desire. This desire never goes away. Even in the darkest times of their relationship, this desire never goes away. By the way, the dark times of their relationship are not, he doesn't cause them, she does. He does not change in this journey. She does. It is clear from the beginning exactly what his feelings are. They don't change, but hers do. Watch. Well, you'll see it unfold. It's going to be a great romance novel that we're reading over the next few weeks. It's really going to be good. Better than Twilight. I'm telling you. It's going to be awesome. I'm just kidding. I don't agree. I really like those books. You read the books? Oh, I read the books. I've read the books multiple times. I read, I read like water. I just like just constantly. I think I read all the Twilight books in like a week. Huh? Team Jacob or Team Edward? Uh, Edward. Have you watched all the movies? A million percent. Yeah. Have you watched yeah. all the movies? Yeah. The movies are pretty... I have to say, the movies are pretty terrible. The movies are pretty bad. Not the third one. The book's going to be some percent like a choice. That's when they get married. Anyway. Yes, they do. They do. They do. Especially the third book. There is this real moment where she could have gone either way. Yeah. She could. She could. Yeah. Okay, this is the request that begins the journey of the rest of this book. She returns to this request, this desire over and over again. It's the chief cry of her heart, and it should be the chief cry of ours. And it's the desire, the cry for intimacy with him, the request to know him more. Please understand, the request to know him more is the request to love him more, is the request to be more like him. We're on a journey into righteousness. That's who we are. I exalt in the opening cry of this book. This cry, I, I, I'm just going to read you something that I wrote a few years ago when I was in, it says, how this cry must have captured Solomon's heart to give it the permanence that he has. I mean, think about that, that, you know, this he had this experience with the real woman, the Shulamite woman. This is a true story. The cry for intimate experiential knowledge of the love of the king. This is the cry that begins the journey of the bride from orphan farm girl to exalted queen, beloved of the king. That's the journey we're on. Rags to riches for real. So I'm taking up that cry today. Father, let Jesus come and kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Let the fire of love be kindled again in my cold heart by the ever-living word. For your love is better than wine, she says. Guys, love feels good. It's intoxicating. I remember once when my wife and I were dating, um, her sister was dating her future husband at the time too. And I was, Rachel and I were sitting in the living room watching a movie and they had been in, you know, in, you know, whatever. And he, he dropped, he dropped my sister-in-law off and went home and she comes in and she just kind of melts into the floor like, because they just been together and ah. And I turned to Rachel and said, do you do that when I leave? (laughs) (laughs) She said, every time. 
She was totally lying, I'm sure. But <laughs> she made it's a good thing to stroke your guy's ego sometimes, ladies. It's okay. Make him feel like you actually desire him sometimes. It's pretty nice. <laughs> Just FYI. <laughs> Eat, be real about it, but also be fake about it. It's totally okay. Lie. Okay. All right. Love feels good. It's intoxicating. We get swept up in human love. How much more God's love for us? How much more? How much more? How much more can we get just swept off our feet? Jer had the unfortunate experience of watching Jesus sweep me off my feet while I was driving 75 miles an hour from Sam Jones' wedding. <laughs> he was a little worried that I was going to crash the car. Because the Holy because Jesus was sweeping me off my feet, and I was just like, I love you so much. And Jer's like, uh, watch the road. <laughs> he, was, he was literally sitting here like this. Hand on the bottom of the student <laughs> middle, head back, just like. <laughs> <laughs> I could not see his eyes open. I was looking pretty hard. For they were mostly open. I mean, please. That would have been like. Oh, I just let the angels drive. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Here's the deal. I know. Enjoying, because we need to understand something. Enjoying God is righteousness. Oh, come on. If you get a hold of this reality, that enjoying God is the most righteous thing you can possibly do. <laughs> enjoying God is the holiest thing you can do. It's the truth. And it's deeply satisfying. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12 and 13 say this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now, of all of the evils that God could have accused his people of, they serve idols, they do this, they do their... They, they had been doing extremely evil things, but God only mentions two. Their primary evil, the one that I want you to be shocked, amazed, appalled by, is this. They walked away from the fountain of living waters, and they went out and dug a hole in the desert that can't even hold water, and they're begging for something to fill it up. They have an endless fountain of satisfying water that they can drink from forever. And they said, nah, and they walked away from it. And they, they said, wow, I'm thirsty. So they started digging a well that has no water in it. Understand what this means. God wants us to be satisfied in him and him alone. God wants us to be deeply, infinitely always, forever, satisfied in him and only in him. And this is righteousness. This is what it means to be in love with Jesus, is to be satisfied by him. And to need nothing else. Psalm 36, 8 says, 
that God gives his people to drink from the rivers of his pleasure. It doesn't say the, the little tiny water fountain of his pleasure. It doesn't say the light misting of rain of his pleasure. No, it says the gushing river of his pleasure is ours to drink from. This is what we're supposed to do. Stick our head into the water and suck the river dry as much as possible. Drink deep of the satisfyingness of God. Psalm 16 verse 11 says that God, that there are eternal pleasures at his right hand. <laughs> this is what we're supposed to experience. This is who we are. The New Testament says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Do you know that it is impossible to be righteous unless you're also joyful? That should mess with your heads right there. In a really great way. It is impossible to be righteous unless you're also joyful. Intimacy is what we were designed for. It's what we were created to experience. Intimacy with God. Understand, sex is a picture of our intimacy with God and there is a Really, and it is really good for a reason. There is a reason that sex is probably the greatest physical pleasure possible for the human being. Do you think God did, accidentally made it really good? You think that was an accident? Oh, oops, boy, that's probably a little too tempting. I probably should not make that as no. Remember that it is a picture of our relationship with God and it is incredibly pleasurable and this is how it's supposed to be with between God and, and us. Far greater, far deeper, and eternal. Okay? Understand that intimacy takes time to develop. You can't... Intimacy does not happen in a fraction of a second. It can't. That's why for those of you that are worship leaders in here, understand something, please. You cannot start a worship set with like that super intimate song. You can't do that. You can't start a worship set with, you know, uh, I don't know. Just wonder what's the most intimate song you know. Like, oh, I, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily agree with that, but okay. But like you can't, you can't start in the secret place. You can't start in intimacy. It doesn't work that way. You can't do that. It's a process. And you have to go from out here where you are all the way into to the deepest place. That's why you start with something that's bigger and lighter and fun and kind of begins to turn our attention away from ourselves and onto God. Oh, okay, and then we can make you know, further steps in, and all of a sudden it's just like you're face to face with Jesus and you're singing, Oh, I love you, right? Okay. Intimacy requires total vulnerability and trust. Oh, that's hard. That's hard. 
That's why you have to have an experience of his love for you before you can love him back the way that you were created to. Because until you trust him, you can't be intimate with him. Intimacy requires vulnerability. It requires trust. There's a reason why nakedness and sex go together. you got to understand that. Because it's a level of vulnerability you don't give to anybody else. And emotional and spiritual nakedness is frightening. Let's just be honest. To be completely honest with God about exactly who you are and exactly how messed up you are. Oh, that's really difficult. And to trust him. To absolutely, to actually trust him to take care of you in those places and not like rely on your own stuff to take care of you. It is really difficult and it takes a journey. And that is the journey that the Shulamite is going on in this book from being far away, from standing in, in the field while he walks by in the road and saying, I want to go to there, to the place where they are together. Where intimacy is the the more regular part of their existence rather than the every every just every once in a while intimacy is the fountain of righteousness and joy in god matthew 6 6 jesus said when you pray go into your room and close the door there's a book I would love for you guys to read, and you can actually get the PDF of it for free online. And the name of the book is Secrets of the Secret Place. It's by Bob Sorge, which is spelled S-O-R-G-E. It is, it's like a roadmap to this to intimacy and a real, uh, it's awesome. It's a great book. I'm having the elders at my new church read it right now. His love is better than wine. The Bible says that wine is for the gladdening of men's heart. So his love is better. I would choose. She's saying, I choose your love beyond anything else that would make my heart glad. I choose your love. She's saying, I believe that your love is the one thing that will satisfy the groaning of my inward heart. And that I understand that I was formed to be loved by the King of Kings. Oh, One of my favorite intimate songs is uh, Lovers of Your Presence, Brian and Katie Torwald. And the last verse says, I was made for love. I was made for loving you. That is an incredibly intimate thing to say. This is, but when we find ourselves in that close, in that place of intimacy, and we're face to face with Jesus, you know, isn't that like the thought? Don't you just, I was born for this. I finally found, like, the the reason I exist is intimacy with God. 
Verse she says, your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like perfume poured out. Therefore, the maidens love you. And the, the idea here is that everything about him is delightful. First, it says, your anointing oil is has a pleasing fragrance. That speaks of Jesus' authority. There's a, there's, there's a psalm that David wrote that says, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You know, you've set my feet on a level path. It's David saying, I trust your leadership. Guys, I know that there are times in our lives when to say to Jesus, I trust your leadership is really hard. When it's really hard to say, I trust you, take me wherever you want me to go. I will walk upon the waters. You know, it's, it's, that's where we're in that ocean's place. Spirit, lead me. Where my trust is without borders. Really, truly, it's like, I trust your leadership. Your authority doesn't. I trust your authority life. I trust the decisions that you're making for me. I trust them. Your authority is sweet. Your priestly office over me is wonderful and obvious. You are a good high priest for me. You minister to me and take care of me. You have made peace between me and God. You are Messiah. That means anointed one. You're the one who brings good news to this poor man, the one who binds up my broken heart, my shattered dreams, my foolish losses, my bruised and battered psyche. This bruised reed you do not break, this flickering flame you do not stuff out. You have proclaimed liberty to this captive and a release from all my bondage. You proclaim over me the end of my waiting, my languishing in the reality that my cries have been heard and my rescuer has come. Your, you proclaim over me the year of the favor of the Lord. My mourning over dead promises in my life is at an end. Your name is perfume poured out. When, he, when she says that, back, you need to understand that the name in Scripture refers to their character, who they are, what they're like. And she's saying, when I begin to encounter who you are, when I begin to see what you're like, when I begin to see what you love and you hate, it's like somebody just sprayed perfume everywhere and the, the fragrance is so strong and beautiful and gorgeous, I just can't get enough of it. You know, I just, I just, just when I've ever smelled cookies baking and you just want to like stick your head in the oven, it's like... Right? I mean, you just, just that, that fragrance. And she's saying, when I encounter who you are, it's like, it's like this fragrance gets released that I just can't get enough of. I just want to smell more and more and more of it. Let it be stronger and stronger. I want that. Who you are is so pleasant, so beautiful, so delicious to me. I cannot get enough. Psalm 27, 4 is one of my life verses that I may one thing I ask, and this only will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Why? To gaze upon your beauty. I think of Mary of Bethany as she sits at the feet of Jesus and she's just 
lost in what he has to say. And Martha's running around like a crazy woman and says, Jesus, make her work, make her help me. And Jesus looks at her and says, you're worried about so many things, but only one thing is needed right now, Martha. Your sister Mary has already picked it, and I'm not going to take it away from her. To gaze at his beauty You're the one thing I wish to behold and to experience. That I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at his temple. Father, set me again to gazing. Set me again to beholding and becoming. It's your glory, O Lord, that I desire to behold, to really know you as you are. You are so satisfying. The more I learn of you, the more I want to learn. I deeply love your nature. You are daddy God. You are a jealous groom. You are a righteous judge. You're a sovereign king. You're all of this and more, and I want to know all that you are. I want to know deeply each of these realities and love them deeply. I want to enjoy you, God. Verse 4 is where we'll stop. She says, draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. I'm not going to read that part. The king has brought me into his chambers. First of all, she says, draw me after you and let us run together. She's asking him for something she's not ready to receive yet, but he still hears her prayer. She's not really ready to run with him yet. And we're going to watch the process she goes through to, find, to be ready to run with him. In fact, the first time that he comes and asks her to run with him, she's like, I'm good, thanks. <laughs> she asked him to let her run with him. But when he comes and says, come run with me, she's like, no, I'm good. We'll get there. That's like phase three. But this is already her desire. She already wants to go there. She already wants to be mature. She wants more than just, more than just, I want to stare into your eyes. She wants to be his partner. She wants to walk with him in partnership. She wants to walk with him in authority and in power. She wants to be his perfect partner forever. And that's what he wants too. But she's not ready yet. And it's this cry of desire for all of him that leads her from the being the orphan daughter of a farmer to the exalted queen. Draw me after you, she says. He says, I will. I hope you're ready. I also love this because she says, the king has brought me into his chambers. Let me help you understand something right now. You don't end up in the king's chambers unless he brings you there. You don't get to just walk into the personal bedroom of the king. He's got lots of guards, lots of guys outside the door that would be like, excuse me, you aren't allowed in there. Can you imagine walking into Barack Obama's bedroom? Do you think that would be allowed? I'm just saying. Do you think you'd be allowed? Do you think you'd be allowed to walk into the Oval Office without an invitation? No. No. Okay, you would not. And it's the same thing with the king. You are not allowed into his private office. You're not allowed into his bedroom unless he takes you there. And she says... He has brought me into his chambers. Not only are you not allowed in there, but you can't get there unless he brings you. 
You are not the only one who wants intimacy with him. He wants intimacy with you. And he has made a decision. I will bring you into my chambers. You have full access. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I'm so excited. I love this journey. And Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends in this room. Come and kiss us with the kisses of your word. Come, we desire you, beautiful one. Come, draw us away. Let us run with you. King, King Jesus, take us to your chambers. Lord, we request, we desire, we beg for intimacy with you. This is all we desire. It's all we want. It's all we would ever ask for. I want to know you. I stand with your friend, the Apostle Paul, and I say, anything I've ever had, anything I've ever done, anything I've ever been, I count as rubbish for the sake of knowing you. It's all crap without you. It's all worthless beside you. Nothing I am, nothing I've done, nothing I could ever be is worth anything if I can have more of you. Come, I pray, King Jesus, by your spirit, stir desire in our hearts. Stir passion inside of us. Stir us. Lord, I pray if there is a person in this room that is not feeling the flame of desire right now, Jesus, I ask you to awaken desire on the inside of us. And Lord, the tiny little flame of desire that's there only by your grace, I pray you would fan into a roaring flame that consumes our very, our very lives, our very hearts, our every moment. Jesus, would you awaken us to desire for more of you? Lord, I pray we would be preoccupied with your glory. I pray we would be obsessed with intimacy with you. I pray they would have to pry us out of the secret place because we just want to spend time there. Put first commandment in first place in our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.